Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are a Jesus community telling the biggest story of God in Los Angeles. We're excited that you're joining the conversation with us today. Enjoy. together ever you get a chance and I will use this time as you're getting back in your seat and you're moving towards the right direction to let you know uh, that today's the first day I, I don't get to do this often anymore and so I'm just I'm I'm so honored and excited to be here this morning and I I don't get to say that enough so thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. And I want to do something, if you'll humor me. For the past year and a half, uh, I think one of the most beautiful journeys of my faith journey has been here at New Abbey, uh, because for the first time in my life, God took me off the stage <laughs> and said, wrap cables, do all that, be involved in the community, be a part of the church. And I got to do that in such a beautiful way that every Sunday I take a picture um, from the back of the church, just at all of you and everything that's going on on the stage. But today, just to humor me, I want to flip that. So can I take a picture of all of you going this way from the front? Is that okay? Okay, so give me your craziest. I'm at church. There it is. Beautiful. Thank you so much. That's, that's so I can smile. Um, all right, we are going to get into it this morning. We're in a, a season where we're talking through the book of Leviticus, and that season has been pretty long, and it may be longer. Uh, it's, a, it's a bonkers book, guys. I listened to a 12-hour commentary uh, and read a commentary on Leviticus uh, that took me about like nine hours this week. Um, all nerdiness, all like crazy, crazy, crazy amounts of information. It all boiled down to this one scripture that I want to share with you this morning, and that scripture is this. Could we put that on the board? You must not give away any, oh, can we do the, uh, the scary version first? Should be the, the King James version. There we go. Uh, and thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire to Molech, neither shall thou profane the name of thy God. I am the Lord. Pretty scary, right? Now let's flip it over to the common English uh, Bible version, which is much easier. You must not give any of your children over, or, uh, to offer them over to Molech so that you do not defile your God's name. I am the Lord. Now, 12 hours in a commentary, nine hours in commentary, and that's the verse that we got to. What is going on <laughs> there? Well, uh, we're going to get into that, um, but what I want to do is I want to pray for us, uh, and then we'll get started. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the beautiful opportunity uh, to share your good news. Thank you for the people that are here. Thank you for the gift that life is that each one of us got to wake up this morning. That we get to come in a space like this, which is different than every space in our lives. We get to come here and talk about the things that matter most. And I just pray over our time, would you bring us peace? Would you let us come without expectation? and just receive what you have for us this morning. Amen. Uh, so about like nine hours into that audio commentary, I'm like walking through my neighborhood, I'm, I'm walking my dog, and in my ears are, are, are verses about goats being sacrificed and how many pigeons you need to bring and all that kind of stuff, and I'm weeding through all the information, and I'm literally getting nervous because it's about Wednesday, and I don't have like anything yet, and I'm like, what is going on? I'm not going to be able to speak on anything, and then all of a sudden, this voice, who's like this small British voice that I'm listening to in double speed on the audio, so it's like high-pitched, goes, and they were writing this out of exile. 
And if you caught that, that means they were writing this out of exile. Which means the whole time I'm listening to like sacrificial goats and how you do this to atone for this and how you do this to atone for this and how you do this to be ritually pure. And just that one throwaway line that said this whole book was written from the context of exile got me. And I went, whoa, wait a minute. Okay, because I don't know a lot about goat sacrifice, thank God. <laughs> but I do know a little bit about what it's like uh, to live in exile. Not physical exile. There is very real exile in the world going on right now. Right now. And that needs to be paid attention to, that needs to be solved, and that needs God's attention, and that needs our attention. But what I want to kind of focus on this morning is the type of exile I've experienced, which is really what, I, what I've started to call an invisible exile, an invisible exile. In 2020, uh, or 2019, actually, uh, I discovered <laughs> that I had a drinking problem. Um, now, to me, that was news to everyone around me. They were like, thank God he's caught up to the fact that he has a drinking problem, <laughs> right? Uh, but I discovered that I had a problem, and I thought it was okay. I thought I could handle it. Um, and what happened was I pushed a little bit on that problem, and I realized how deep the roots were within my very soul. I had no clue. It's almost like I had planted this whole garden, and I was just seeing these, like, little weeds sprout up, and I was like, those little weeds are not a problem. I'll come in, and I just, like, trimmed them away, like, over and over and over again, and then one day I came out there, and the whole thing was just the weeds, and the roots were taller than I am tall above ground. It was so deeply enrooted in my soul that I felt like I was out of place with the world. And so I tried quitting on my own, that didn't work. I tried AA, that didn't work at first. And then I tried treatment and then I tried detox. I went to six different detox centers, three different treatment centers and two different sober livings just to be able to stand in front of you today. And I'm telling you right now, it's still half-baked. <laughs> it's still in progress and it's still in motion. I remember being at one of those treatment centers um, and I have a little brother, his name is Brendan uh, and he's my closest friend in like the whole world. Some of you know Brendan. Um, I grew up in a missionary's family, so my dad was a pastor, and we moved, like, all over the place. I moved, like, seven times before I turned 14, and then uh, I went to, like, four different high schools. So if you do the math, it's just all over the place. I'm always, like, a perpetual new kid. But during that whole process, my little brother was really the anchor. Like, there were five years between us, and when you're a kid, that's, like, a big deal, but it wasn't to us. He was just my best friend. He was the person that I would always rely on. And in 2018, Brendan had this massive motorcycle accident. Uh, where he was um, crossing, he was going downhill, uh, and he came to the corner, and the stoplight changed, and he didn't see it, and he went through, and a truck came this way, and he, like, just by this much, missed the truck, and his, his scooter hit just the tail end of the fender, and it sent him flying. He basically flew from this end of the stage to the other end of the stage, and that's no joke, because it was about a city block from one end of the other. Uh, and when he landed, he ripped his aorta, which is the main passage of blood from your heart. And most of the time, when he got to the hospital, the, the doctors were like, we don't even really work on this that often. Like, this is something people don't come to the hospital for because they're already passed away at the scene. Um, and in that time, I was really uh, with Brendan the most. I mean, I, had a, I was a pastor, <laughs> a flexible working schedule. Uh, so I was there, and I was basically, like, living in the hospital with him. Um, and and I, I remember those times so vividly because Brendan needed my help really badly. He needed me to be present. He needed me to be there. He needed me to get him food or whatever it was. He was in really bad shape. 
And I remember thinking in my head, like, oh, wait a minute. This, it, it, was, it, it was that moment in that situation I remember thinking, maybe these weeds in my garden are getting a little bit out of control because every hour or so, or maybe even more, <laughs> that's pretty generous, maybe every 30 minutes, I was having to get out of the hospital room to go take a drink. I was even bringing in alcohol to his room to drink there because I was so lost and I was so confused and I was so broken. And so fast forward a couple of years, I'm in treatment and I'm having this conversation with my friend John and John is a, a tech at this treatment center and he works there and he's nice enough to listen to me ramble <laughs> as it's in the morning and, and I, I'm telling him about Brendan and I'm telling him about the relationship that I'm in with Brendan now. We're past the motorcycle accident, he's okay, but we're not okay because my alcoholism ruptured that relationship. It broke the peace that surrounded that relationship. In biblical terms, we call that, it broke the shalom that me and my brother had. It was this perfect whole, integra like integral peace, and it was completely whole. And what I did in the actions that I did and the reactions that I had is I broke apart that perfect peace and that shalom, kind of one piece at a time. And before long, our relationship wasn't like there wasn't any kind of like major like fight or any major event. But what I realized is I'm in treatment here. I haven't heard from my brother. And from what my family kind of told me, I couldn't really expect to hear from Brendan anytime soon. It was just too much for him to be around me in that kind of a way. And so I was just lost and I was without my brother who was my best friend and my one anchor. And I'm talking to John uh, and John throws at me and I'm like throwing my life and my soul at John looking for just some semblance of give me some kind of anchor to hold on to in this crazy storm because I feel out of place with the world. I feel an invisible exile here. And John threw back the most cheesy, annoying AA line in the whole world, which was, just stay for the miracle. <laughs> just stay for the miracle, John. I was like, perfect. Oh, yeah, I'll just stay for the miracle. Thank you, John, just spending $20,000 to be here. I'll just stay for the miracle. <laughs> but those words have done their work on me, that stay for the miracle, because the truth is, like, when we're in that place of exile, when we're in that place of invisible exile, which means really all of us have been there at some points in our lives. Mine is really extreme. It's very loud. <laughs> it's called alcoholism and it's kind of up here. But all of us have done things in our lives that have gotten us out of step with the world. Maybe it's that what we did or, or not even what we did, but maybe a part of us, maybe even a disease is causing this. Whatever it is, it is breaking the shalom in the world around you. And inwardly, you feel that disconnect every day. You feel like, I'm at home here. This is my home. This is L.A. Santa Monica is a perfect example of that. I, just, I lived in Santa Monica for like 10 years. When COVID happened, we moved away and we came back. Nothing looks the same. <laughs> it's a totally different city, right? I'm in the same place, but everything looks different. That's what it's like to be out of tune with the world. That's what it's like to be in sort of invisible exile. And that's what I felt like. I felt like that for my family. I felt like that for my brother. And John's only piece of advice was just, hey, man, just stick around. <laughs> just stay. You're doing exactly what you need to do. You're just standing here. And that's okay. Because where you're coming from, it's an absolute miracle that you're right here. And where I found myself in is really similar to where Israel is when they're in the context of Leviticus. See, they've been displaced. When Leviticus is written, it's the Babylonian sort of empire. And so Babylon has come in and they've taken these people and they've taken them out of their city. They've taken them out of their homes. And so these people are living in physical exile and they're writing down all these rules and regulations to try and remember what is it that connected us to that God? What does it look like when that shalom is whole? What does it look like when I am home? 
And so as we read this book, it's really kind of like Exodus is, is where we're coming out of, right? So if Exodus is what we're running away from, there has to be something that we're running to. And Leviticus, weirdly enough, with all of its goat sacrifice and pigeons and everything, is actually what we're running to. We're running to a God who cares about us enough to not just save us from that fire, but actually show us how to live in the real world. <laughs> it's not just about liberation, and it's not just about freedom. It's like once we're free and once I'm liberated, what do I do with all of this? What do I do with all this? And so when John says, stay for the miracle, it initially like popped in my head. I, in, I immediately remembered this really nerdy Bible fact that I have that I'm going to lay on you guys right now. So one time, I tried to research how long it would take the Israelites. No, I'm sorry. I tried to research where the Red Sea was, or the Reed Sea for your real Bible nerds out there, um, where it was. And I couldn't find that. I couldn't find where they were going to cross it. But I did find this. Some scholar did the research and figured out how many Israelites they were, how, many, uh, how long it would take them to get from point A to point B. And the answer to that is about nine hours. <laughs> and when I thought about that, every, when I grew up and was learning the story of the Red Sea and the parting and everything, I just kind of assumed, here, it's just like this big parade and we go through and it takes like two seconds and everyone's on the other side and there's all this celebration. No, 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 no. It's like an event. You ever been to a concert? Concert's a stressful experience, <laughs> right? Like I've got to show up and then I've got to get in the right line and I've got to go here. That's what's happening with this massive group of people who have no idea how to function in freedom, Right? You've got no clue how to function in freedom. You've got no Pharaoh anymore. All you've got is this Moses guy telling you to walk through a body of water that you're not sure if the water is going to hold. So I got to tell you, if it's like 4.5 hours here and I'm halfway through those big walls of water, I'm going to start to freak out a little bit. <laughs> Will it last another 4.5 hours for me to get to the other side? Did I not get in the front of the line? Should I be in the back of the line? What's the best place to be right now? That's invisible exile, right? And there's this beautiful story uh, this Rabbi Lawrence Kushner tells about these two Israelites who are walking through that Red Sea moment. And it says, uh, their names are Reuben and Shuvan, and, and everyone is, is walking through this nine-hour journey through these giant miracles of just water on one side, water on the other side. You're like walking through. But Reuben and Shuvan, something different was going on. Reuben and Shuvan were having a bad day, and both of them found each other. And so during that walk through the Red Sea, they're like looking down at their sandals, and they're going, it's so muddy in here. <laughs> It's so muddy. I can't, we didn't have this kind of muddy this in Israel. Pharaoh always let us walk on dry land, right? And, and they're like, they just keep talking. Like, it's always it's cold in here, isn't it? Isn't it a little bit cold? They're just complaining about the journey to get over there. And the whole point of the story is when they get to the other side, and Exodus paints this picture too, there's like rejoicing. People are singing these songs. They're free. They're out of Israel. And what the rabbis would say is to Reuben and Shuvan, that miracle never happened because they weren't present to it because they were somewhere else. Yeah, the miracle's happening right within them. They are walking in a miracle, and yet we're so focused on our feet that we can't actually see that miracle. And that's not really their fault in that moment, and the reason I wanna kind of paint that picture is because when we're in that state, our brains, our hearts, our guts, everything is not ready <laughs> to take on what's supposed to come. There has to be this moment of transition where we get a little uncomfortable, where we have to do the hard work, and then the miracle happens. What was really happening with Reuben and Shuvan wasn't that I'm just complaining and that I can't pay attention and I can't see anything. It was that they were actually carrying the name of a different God through those waters. And that name was Pharaoh. 
You see, the Israelites, they're aware of this God. They're aware of the story of this God. But the real power in their lives for the past however many generations is an oppressive force called Pharaoh that keeps me a slave. That's what God looks like. So God, obviously, is going to troll us through these big, like, walls of water, uh, and we're going to get over there because God has to be this sort of, like, slave-driving mentality, like, angry boss that wants us to do nothing but work and perish. We're only used to be used. That's it, right? They're carrying the wrong name of God. And so that leads us back to our very nerdy and very strange original Bible verse that I had up here in Leviticus. <laughs> so can we put that up again? Uh, and thou shalt not let any of thy seed pass through the fire, Molech, neither, shall, uh, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God, I am the Lord. Now that statement, I am the Lord, happens 24 times in Leviticus. I know, the guy's 12-hour commentary. <laughs> that, that happens 24 times in Leviticus. I am the Lord. 24 times. I don't want to get too cheesy and evangelical pastory on you, but if you calculate that up, that's one enough for every hour in the day that I am your God. Not the other gods you're carrying through that water. Not the other things. Not Molech. So let's just pause for a second on Molech. What is Molech? It sounds like Molech. It sounds kind of delicious. Anyway, Molech is an ancient uh, god. And there were actually sort of shrines to Molech everywhere within Jerusalem, too. He's a really popular deity. But what would happen is we, didn't, we don't view gods like they viewed gods back then. God was an ideal or a mindset or a culture. It was something that you took on. So if you were traveling through a foreign land and you were going through there, you would ask the people you were traveling, like as you came onto a town, what's the god of this land? And then they would tell you the name of that god, and then you would travel and you would carry the name of that god with you through that land. Now, where we get the Ten Commandments, that thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain, what that really means is thou shalt not carry the Lord's name in vain. So a lot of us thought that was just about swearing. I did too, until this 12-hour commentary. <laughs> what it really means is you're carrying the wrong name. To carry the name of God means I carry everything about this God with me in honor, right? And so if you're carrying the name of Molech, I looked up who Molech was, and here's who Molech was. Molech was a cow, sort of a deity, so he was like a golden statue that was hollowed out, and he had his hands facing this way. And you would see these creepy little shrines all around Jerusalem like Mickey Mouse. He was just kind of hanging out like there, and you like turn a corner, and then there's a new Molech, hollowed out golden calf with his hands out. What Molech wants beyond anything else is sacrifice. So much so that Molech's big deal was the death of your firstborn child. You were to sacrifice to Molech the death of your firstborn child. That's what this God wants. In fact, Molech's name actually has a meaning if you look it up in the dictionary because it's used in sort of Latin, it's used in theological circles. And Molech means, and I wrote this down because I knew I'd forget it, uh, the name actually means to rule in shame. To rule in shame. And then the definition of Molech is any cause to which a dreadful sacrifice is made or destruction is due. Let me read that again. Any cause to which a dreadful sacrifice is made or destruction is due. So that's what Molech wants. That's how we follow Molech, in destruction, in servitude, in shame. That's how we carry the name of that God. But God reminds us 24 times in Leviticus that I am the Lord your God. And you're actually supposed to be carrying my name. When you give over to Molech and you give, you give all of that hurt and that pain and you engage in destructive things, what you're doing is really you're carrying the name of that God and you're not carrying my name. You're taking my name in vain. 
You're taking my name in vain. And I just wonder how often we're taking God's name in vain without even knowing it. Like I'm carrying all of this, but I'm not carrying the good stuff. <laughs> I'm carrying all the guilt and the shame and all the stuff Molech wants, but I'm not carrying any of the good stuff for me. And that reminded me all the way of the story of the prodigal son. Now, Corey's going to laugh at this because every time I preached here at New Abbey, I've had this on my notes as I'm going to do the prodigal son. And every time I've had to cut it in terms of time. So I'm doing okay right now. <laughs> so I'm going to go for the prodigal son. Are we ready for the prodigal son? All right, here we go. Prodigal son goes like this. I'm going to give you the first part of the story because the scripture is long and I want you to kind of get into it. We're going to actually just focus on the prodigal walk back. And I want you to remember Molech as we talk about this. And I want you to remember sort of the context that we're in in this time in history where this story is being told. This story to me is the entire gospel. If we can just start from this story and, and move everything else from this story, life is going to look so much more beautiful because this story holds in it the real true redemption that's possible. Uh, in this faith tradition. So here's how this goes. Uh, the prodigal son is, is a story of two sons, really. And it wasn't called the prodigal son until much later in history. So really what it's called is the, the story of two sons. And so uh, one son comes to his father and he's really mad. Uh, and you've probably heard this in church a thousand times before. So I want to make this really, really short. He's really angry at his father. Says, dad, I basically want you dead which is the, the proper way to say this in this tradition. If you came and you said, I want my inheritance, you're saying to your father, short of me murdering you or having you killed, I want you dead. And it actually, in Jewish law at that time, the father had every right to stone his child to death for even suggesting that he give him half of his inheritance. Stone him to death, right? So the prodigal son, this other son, has a lot of chutzpah, if you will. <laughs> he's coming to the father and he's going, I want all my inheritance. I'm out. I don't like this life. I'm gone. I'm out. Give me what's mine. And so the father uh, gives him what's his. And he goes and he goes off into a strange land and he begins to spend money and he begins to party and he begins to have all of the experiences that sort of I had in addiction. And then he comes to his senses and that's where we find him here. So we're gonna pick up right here and he comes to his senses. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and have, uh, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Let's just pause on that slide really quick. This is what I call the walk home mantra. So he's saying this now, and this is what he's going to repeat to himself his entire walk home. So there's a couple of different details in the story that we need to be really clear on. It says that he goes to a far off land. So his return trip is going to be pretty long. <laughs> so in that long return trip, he's going to repeat this phrase to him. I'll set out and I'll just tell my dad, like, Father, I've sinned against you and heaven and against you, right? I'm just, and I'm just going to ramble that over and over and over again. How many of you have ever had to break up with someone or been, I'm, actually, this works better if you've broken up with someone, but when you're breaking up with someone and you're rolling those like that, or maybe you're quitting a job, whatever it is, big conversation, you've got that conversation running in your head like over and over and over again, and you're nailing it like every time, but then you kind of like move little things every time. That's what he's doing with these words. He's using his own anxiety to try and solve his problems <laughs> on that walk home. All he needed to do was say that once, walk home and say it to the Father, but he's in his own story and in his own anxiety and in his own story, I've done too much. I've done way too much. It is insulting for me to go back to my father and ask to be a son again, so I'll just go back and I'll be a servant with him. Maybe he'll accept me, maybe my family will accept me, but the, pr the problem is I just have no other place to turn. So I'll make up an excuse. I'll make up a crafty story. I'll go, I've sinned against you, but I can be a servant and I'm pretty handy, right? 
We do this a lot in our lives. We come up with creative solutions that are around the real one, which is just going to your father and saying, I really messed up. And I really, really, really need to talk to you. Right? So he's trying to solve his own problem and he's walking back. We can go to the next slide here. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worried to be called your son, worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put him on him. Bring a ring on his finger and his sandals on his feet. I was reading this Irish philosopher this week, and he said that there's an Irish word for gana, which means to be naked or to be exposed, and it's the same word in that language for exile. So what's happening when the son comes home is he's naked and he's walking through, and the father says, no way, bring him a robe, put sandals on his feet, put a ring on his finger, take him out of exile, clothe him, and let him know that he's home and he's deeply loved. It's like the first thing we see before he can get out his like anxious speech, <laughs> the thing he's been practicing all the way back on his way home, now God is saying, look, you're here, you're home. I just almost made a really cheesy Olive Garden joke. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> You're here, your family. You're home. You're home. It's different than Molech, right? Uh, we have another slide there? Or is that the last one? There we go. Okay. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. There's so much to unpack here, but in that ancient context, if you killed the fattened calf, it meant you were inviting the entire town over for dinner, because <laughs> no family in their right mind could meet, eat all of that, and there's no refrigeration. I mean, we got to think practically here. I got to invite the whole town over. Now, I just really want to paint this picture for you, because I'm a pastor in a, in a sort of space in my life that, like, I, Corey was right. Like, I'm here and that's incredible, but honestly, there was a huge amount of me when I first started going through this journey that just thought, like, there's no freaking way God is ever going to let me do this work again. Like, all I'm good for is just to be some kind of servant somewhere. I, I'm, not, I'm not good for this anymore. And when I read the journey of the prodigal son, what I saw is, son, I understand you were mistaken, you were hurt, you were healing, you insulted me. You did all those things, but that doesn't make you any less than my son. The only person that put prodigal on that name was some writer hundreds of years later. The original biblical writers just put the two sons, because that was never in question. It's just two sons. And then I want to point out one crazy thing to you as well. If he's coming from a long way off, the way an ancient town was structured was the front gate. You'd be at the front gate, and then the marketplace would be beyond that. And then past the marketplace would likely be a place of worship. And then past the place of worship would be the town where the people lived in. And so this guy, this prodigal, would have had to have walked all the way from that front gate, the marketplace, he goes through, and everybody knew this story, man. Everybody knew this story because this guy had burned his dad and left, and culturally, that would have been a buzz in the neighborhood. So they're going to see this guy because he's naked <laughs> walking through the town, and all of a sudden, there's going to be a buzz on, right? Oh, my gosh, did you see so-and-so was back? 
do you know what he did to his father? He's going to get stoned. Let's go watch him get killed, right? So they're all going to follow, and they're all going to go find him, and they're all going to go see what happens. So I just envision, like, he's walking through, but it's like, it's like Beauty and the Beast, like an old Disney movie. Everyone's singing, and they're dancing, and there's a guy with bread, and they're all following, like, along, and they're getting ready to see what's going to happen, right? Let's go see the fight. And they get there, and the father responds like this. Kill the fattened calf and all of you are invited to the party because what the father knew is that to, to restore that shalom, to restore that peace, we've got to put these people in proximity together and there has to be food and there has to be a table and they have to be around it together so that they can see that this son of mine really is a son and the whole community can heal. So the story of the prodigal son is not some story of God and one man. It's the story of all of us. When someone gets out of tune with the world, we help bring them back in, and then we all get to celebrate. That's what church is. Sharon Salzberg, when she talks about meditation, she's a meditation teacher. She says that the only benefit of meditation is in the coming back. It's when you've lost yourself. It's why most of us don't meditate. Because you're like, I can't sit there. I'm going to get all distracted. And her big thing is, no, the biggest part of that, the, the, all of the brain science behind it, every sort of like, good thing that comes from that is when you catch yourself out there and you bring yourself back in. That's where all the magic happens. That's the kingdom of God. So we are all just a room of people catching each other <laughs> as we're going off and bringing each other home. And that is what shalom looks like. And that is wonder looks like. And that is what peace looks like. But that son was only coming for the servitude. He was only coming for this. And I think that we get trapped in that all the time. I do as an addict. I come expecting only mercy when God wants to give me grace. I come only expecting being a servant when God wants me to have so much more than that in my life. We got to stop trading in mercy for grace. They are not the same thing. I'll end with a story. My little brother, a couple of years ago, uh, my grandparents live in Vermont. They live on this lake. And, uh, and it's, a, it's a really tiny lake, but there's no one that lives on it. And, uh, and there's nothing to do there. So in the middle of the night, my brother and I decided we're going to go fishing. Because in the middle of the night, it's the best time to go fishing. That's not true. I, we don't know about fishing. So <laughs> apparently there was legend of fishing poles in our aunt's cabin that was like, you know, a, a mile down the road. We didn't have a car, so we were walking that in like the middle of the night. Um, this is before I got sober, so that should explain a lot. But anyway, we're like walking over, and we're going for these fishing poles. And that's what we're looking for. And we open up the door to my aunt's cabin. And this is like the fun aunt. Like this is the aunt that would always throw the parties. She had all the good stuff. Like all my cousins had the fun toys growing up. You know, so we went to her house to go to the fun shed. And we open up the fun shed, and sure enough, Aunt Joan is on brand because there is not just fishing poles there, but lo and behold, I open up this door, and it's like a cachet of fireworks, <laughs> like literal explosive fireworks. And this is Vermont. I have no idea where they ship these in from, but they're just there, and it's a stockpile. It looks like the whole thing is going to go up. And instantly, in my eyes and in Brendan's eyes, my brother, we look at each other, and we go, I guess we're not fishing tonight <laughs> and we take a bunch of these fireworks and we load them into the canoe and we paddle out into the middle of the water and we find a raft that's out there and we get out on there and we start lighting off these huge fireworks and we have one of the best nights of our lives and likely the people around us had one of the worst nights of their lives <laughs> but I think there's a core core truth there that's that a lot of time in life we come looking for fishing poles and God wants to give us fireworks I come looking for a good thing, and God wants to give me a better thing. I just have to stay for the miracle. So with that, we're going to get back into our groups, and you're going to answer this question with each other. And that question is, where can you start looking for fireworks?
Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.